Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Satellites don't typically have to move around much once they reach orbit. But some demonstrations straight out of sci-fi show that space is becoming a battleground. To be able to make evasive maneuvers, satellites need more power. Nuclear power. And every generation or so, a genuinely new medium emerges and artists find in it a new place to inhabit. We visit an exhibition by a one-time street artist who's now globally famous. You can see every single inch of it, too, in the game Fortnite. But first... Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz sat down last night with his Polish counterpart Andrzej Duda, and flying in at the last was France's president Emmanuel Macron. Mr. Macron had just come from Moscow, where he claimed to have secured a pledge from Russian President Vladimir Putin not to escalate tensions on Ukraine's border. Nous avons, comme je l'ai dit très précisément hier, échangé avec le président Poutine. Il m'a dit qu'il ne serait pas à l'origine d'une escalade. But the Kremlin quickly denied that a deal had been struck. So the parade of international diplomacy continues. In last night's crisis meeting, Mr. Schultz spoke up, adding to calls for de-escalation. Der Aufmarsch russischer Truppen an der Grenze zur Ukraine ist sehr besorgniserregend und unsere Einschätzung der Lage hier ist da sehr identisch. But in his tenure so far as Germany's leader, Mr. Schultz hasn't been doing much speaking up. His critics, on the other hand, have started to say plenty. It's a tense time, to say the least, for Germans and for the international community to learn what kind of leader he's going to be. So there's a narrative that's emerged around Olaf Scholz in recent weeks. Um, that's of the invisible chancellor, the leader that you never see, that you never hear from. And it has been striking that uh, Mr. Scholz, who's only been in office for a couple of months, has had very little to say on the biggest questions confronting his country, and chief among those, of course, has been the role that Germany is playing in the ongoing crisis over Ukraine. Tom Nuttall is our Berlin bureau chief. That has started to change this week with a sort of madcap flurry of diplomacy, starting with a trip to the United States on Monday, continuing this week with a series of discussions with European leaders and culminating in a visit at the start of next week, first to Kiev and then to Moscow, where Olaf Scholz will meet Vladimir Putin for the first time in his capacity as chancellor. And what is it that's provoked this change, this flurry of diplomacy, as you say? 
Well, I think in part, it's the sharpness of the criticism. On the domestic side, there's this notion of Schultz as sort of invisible, just not present in the debate, a complete absence of leadership. And then internationally, especially in the United States and also in parts of Central and Eastern Europe, there's been this argument that Germany is somehow an unreliable ally in NATO, that it cannot be relied on to play its role in bolstering the West's response to um, this crisis in Ukraine. And this takes on a number of dimensions, Germany's ongoing refusal to deliver defensive weapons to Ukraine, the saga of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, and then a general sense that you get in some quarters that some parts of the German elite is simply too receptive, too sympathetic to Russian ideas about the security architecture in Europe. You mentioned the Nord Stream gas pipeline. How does that figure into all this? So this is a running sore between America and Germany's governments. It's a gas pipeline that runs at the bottom of the Baltic Sea directly from Russia to Germany. It flared up again on Monday when Olaf Scholz met Joe Biden in Washington. Joe Biden said unequivocally that should there be further Russian aggression against Ukraine, then the United States would ensure that the pipeline is dead, that no gas ever flows through it. Olaf Scholz in the press conference was asked several times directly whether he agreed. And he resorted to this gnomic formula of saying that everything would be on the table and that all allies would act together. But he refuses to utter the words Nord Stream 2. And for some observers, it is a little frustrating to see a German chancellor who appears to be on board with the American approach to this, but refuses to give this explicit assurance that Germany will kill the pipeline if there is further Russian aggression. So why has the German response been equivocal in all these ways on Ukraine? In my view, some of the criticism has been overdone. It's pretty clear that if there is an act of unequivocal aggression by Russia against Ukraine, that Germany will be fully signed up to whatever package of sanctions and other measures is put in place by the European Union, the United States and other partners to respond against that. There are, of course, quibbles over exactly what that package would contain because different countries have different degrees of vulnerability and exposure to the Russian economy. Germany is very reliant on Russian gas and that would have implications there. But I don't think there's any sense that Germany has become fundamentally unreliable. I think the problem here has actually been more one of communication. The fact that Olaf Scholz has been, at least until this week, completely absent in the international debate about how to respond to this is a big problem. And it contrasts rather sharply with the approach that was taken under Angela Merkel, who was absolutely key in shaping a European response when Russia annexed Crimea and stirred up trouble in the Donbass back in 2014. So far, we've seen Olaf Scholz just play this very sort of passive role, as if he was just one among 27 leaders in EU countries. And I think that's the problem that a lot of people, both inside Germany and outside, have had with the role that he's been playing in this crisis so far. And why do you suppose it is that it's been difficult for him to find his voice in this? One reason is simply his personality. He's always been sort of reticent sort, doesn't go in for grandstanding, big speech, huge rhetorical turns. But I think there might be another explanation for this. In Germany, coalition governments are the norm. This one has three parties, which is especially potentially fractious. And the parties have differing views on Russia and what Germany's response to it 
ought to be at the end of last year. Ola Schultz was figuring out what sort of chancellor he wanted to be. And then along came this crisis. And it was very difficult, I think, to find the sort of voice that Germans, and in particular Germany's international partners, were seeking from a German chancellor. When what they might have been seeking was a crisis management expert like Mrs. Merkel. Yeah, and for me, the contrast is really, really telling. Uh, I mean, in some ways, it's a little bit unfair. The previous flare-up of the Ukraine crisis was in 2014, when Angela Merkel had been in office for nine years. Um, Olaf Scholz has been in office for about nine weeks. I think the thing to look at is the way in which Angela Merkel marshaled the European response on sanctions. She worked hand-in-glove with Barack Obama's administration at the time. And crucially, she was the one European interlocutor that Vladimir Putin trusted. And over the years, she would speak to Putin regularly. Now, there's been none of that. Olaf Scholz has only spoken to Vladimir Putin once. That was the congratulatory call uh, in December after he took office. That, of course, will change next week when he goes to Moscow. But it all feels a little bit too little too late. Merkel was not a visionary politician, but she did become Europe's, in effect, crisis manager-in-chief. What we may be learning about Olaf Scholz is that although he was very good at coming up with plans and executing them, he really struggles in the face of crisis when it's not obvious what sort of response he wants to deliver. So how do you see this developing then in terms of who is Europe's crisis manager-in-chief? Well, one thing that's been very obvious in the last couple of weeks is that Emmanuel Macron, France's president, has been seeking to, in effect, fill the gap that's been left by Angela Merkel's departure. She's been very active in diplomacy, speaking to Putin regularly, going to see him in Moscow this week. Not every country in Europe will be confident in Emmanuel Macron as a representative of Europe. Emmanuel Macron is not always trusted in some Eastern European countries that are closer to Russia. And I think Olaf Scholz belatedly has realized that a German chancellor needs to do more in this crisis than simply offer bland assurances that Germany will be a reliable partner. But, you know, there is now a residue of skepticism about whether he can hope to fill the shoes that were left by his predecessor. And that, I think, is the big task for Olaf Scholz going forward. Thanks very much for your time, Tom. Thanks, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. There are thousands of active spacecraft orbiting the Earth. These satellites enable everything from GPS to television to better weather prediction. Southwesterly five or six, decreasing four at times. Rain, then. And they can have important military uses, 
America's armed forces can watch the buildup of Russian troops around Ukraine in real time. Russia has amassed 100,000 troops near its borders with Ukraine, leading to grave international concern. But there's a problem. Satellites providing all this information carry only small reserves of rocket fuel, which makes them slow and not so easy to move around. They're sitting ducks in space, vulnerable to attack. So some countries are looking at how to give them more power by going nuclear. There's a number of reasons to use nuclear power in space. Benjamin Sutherland writes about technology and defense for The Economist. For one thing, people want to be able to have spacecraft that are faster and more maneuverable. You could get a nuclear-powered spacecraft from a fairly low orbit up to a geostationary one, which is nearly 36,000 kilometers above Earth in just a few hours. Uh, to do that with a regular satellite that's burning rocket fuel would take several days. So there's a big difference in time. There's also a lot more interest in uh, traveling to the moon and Mars. And uh, with a faster spacecraft, you could get to those destinations much, much easier, much faster. Another important benefit is that you would be able to protect satellites from attack if you could maneuver them more deftly. If you've got abundant power on your satellite, you can change its trajectory all the time and essentially render it unpredictable. What, what sort of attack do you mean? Well, in November, Russia blew up one of its own satellites more than 500 kilometers above Earth. That was quite a shock. This is what's called a direct ascent missile. It was Russia's first such test. It was a success. It spread a large cloud of debris through a number of orbits, infuriating more than a few people worldwide. So that was a pretty intense move on the part of Russia. It demonstrated not just technological prowess, but also that it was willing to put its own spacecraft at risk in order to make a point. China had done the same back in 2007. So this has really contributed to a growing feeling that space is becoming a warfighting domain. And the United States is looking for ways to protect its satellites. The United States also has the greatest vulnerability of any country because in order to fight in an over-the-horizon theater, it would really need the reconnaissance and the communication relays from those satellites. So in light of the fact that Russia and China have shown they can destroy their own satellites and, and therefore kind of anybody else's, the idea now is to, to go with nuclear power. But hasn't nuclear power been used in space and satellites for years? Yes, but in a very different way. Many decades ago, scientists developed what they call radioisotope thermoelectric generators. These devices generate a little bit of power from the heat that comes from the decay of radioactive isotopes. So there's no nuclear reactor They've been put into the Voyager spacecraft launched in the 1970s. They've been put into rovers uh, sent to Mars. And the amount of heat that they give off allows you to generate a small amount of wattage, enough for what would power a light bulb or two or three on Earth, not much more than that. So that's not going to solve what the Pentagon considers to be this problem of needing a lot more power to move spacecraft out of the way of incoming missiles. So is the Pentagon doing anything about it? So America's Pentagon has initiated two programs to solve the problem. One is developed by DARPA, and the other one is from the Defense Innovation Unit, which has put out a request for proposals in September. Later this month, they're expecting to announce the first two winners. 
These are probably going to be systems that will use nuclear reactors to generate what's called electric propulsion. You essentially add electricity to a gas to ionize it and get that gas to come out of a thruster, and that provides a bit of thrust. That's one approach. A very different approach is underway at DARPA. They're using a small nuclear reactor in order to heat liquid hydrogen, which will be supercooled to pretty close to absolute zero. And when that liquid hydrogen expands, it's going to expand with terrific force into a hot gas. It's going to shoot out of a nozzle, and that's going to provide just an incredible amount of thrust for, for very fast movement. Both China and Russia are also looking at the technology. So there's something of a race going on. DARPA wants to be testing this in orbit as early as 2025, which is just an astonishingly short timeline, especially for a project that was only recently announced. And the other issue that, that comes up when, when thinking of using nuclear power in space is the risk posed by well, shooting nuclear kit up into space in the first place. Is that being addressed here? Yes, absolutely. In fact, the concern is essentially, what if the whole thing blows up on a launch pad? Now, that actually is not that much of a risk. Obviously, an explosion on a launch pad is dangerous, but it wouldn't be more dangerous than just the explosion of a conventional rocket. They are not turning the reactor on. It's not going to be started up until it's in orbit. So this virgin uranium will not pose a radiological hazard. There is probably a bigger risk than a nuclear accident, and that is that if you get a lot of nuclear power up into space, you can generate a lot of electricity, and that electricity could be used potentially to jam communications and essentially shut down the ability of satellites to do anything remote sense or transmit information without a need to actually physically destroy them. That could potentially knock out communications for satellites in a large swath of different orbital regimes, depending on how many of these systems were put up. Every indication is that Russia is developing these orbital weapons. But presumably once this technology is developed, it's going to have more use than, than just military use. Yes, absolutely. America's space agency, NASA, is very interested in this technology. They're putting a lot of money into it. They expect to have a prototype ready for testing in 2026. And the idea is that future iteration of this prototype could be used for a trip to Mars. In the early 2030s, they'd like to be able to send up a robotic cargo mission and get there in six months or less with this type of propulsion. And then following that, the idea is to put astronauts on Mars using the same type of engine. Even closer to home, NASA wants to have a small nuclear power plant placed on the moon by the end of this decade. And in fact, they've put out a request for proposals, and those proposals are due in by February 19th. Any way you look at it, space is definitely entering its nuclear age. Benjamin, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Smack in the middle of Kensington Gardens in London, the Serpentine North is a small gallery, but by some measures, it's hosting the biggest art exhibition in the world. 
the show has a kind of complex structure, if you want, a little bit like a, an onion or one of those Russian dolls where one doll is inside the next doll is inside the next doll. Maybe it's good to begin with a physical show, although I'm not sure... Daniel Birnbaum is the curator of Cause New Fiction, showcasing the work of Brian Donnelly, who goes by Cause, that's K-A-W-S. Well, it, it, it's interesting that a painting like this, which is a recent painting, to me looks like a totally abstract piece of art as abstract as a Jackson Pollock painting. It looks as abstract... The first layer of the onion is standard gallery stuff, but brighter. Neon-flecked canvases, cartoonish sculptures. Then Daniel scans a QR code on the gallery floor. He shows me his phone, camera on, and as he pans around the gallery, we're not alone. I think the big bluish guy, which is this person, who is standing in front of paintings looking over here, is kind of dumb in a humorous way. The sort of cookie monster, almost. And he is very kind of involved with the art, obviously. He's really not moving everywhere. He's just staring at that painting. We shouldn't disturb him. We should not disturb him, and we will leave him right there. (laughs) But it's not just reality with augmented elements. There's also an entirely virtual counterpart to the show in the game Fortnite, People from Fortnite have made a perfect replica. It's kind of humorous to know that my curatorial decisions here, placing that painting here and that little character there, now is duplicated in that metaverse world, or whatever we want to call it. I think we did a good version of of Brian's art here, but that has been made many times. But no one else has reached people in Hong Kong and Buenos Aires and Reykjavik at the same time in the millions. So of course it's a, you know, it's, I see it as a curatorial experiment. The augmented reality section of the exhibition isn't that innovative. Rachel Lloyd is The Economist's deputy culture editor. Galleries and museums have used that before, particularly in lockdown. There was much more demand for digital access to art. But the thing that is completely new is the idea of recreating not only an artistic institution, but the entire exhibition that's currently being shown in that artistic institution. Um, For the first week of the exhibition... It was the featured hub in Fortnite, which meant that all players could see it and could interact with it, if you so wish. So why Fortnite, though? Why that game in particular, that platform in particular? Well, Fortnite has an enormous reach. There's more than 350 million registered players. And it's also experimented, particularly in lockdown, with new formats. So musicians, including Travis Scott and Ariana Grande, performed on Fortnite, Travis Scott's 15-minute set reached an audience of nearly 30 million people. So you're talking about an order of magnitude that is much greater than is going to go to any real-life exhibition. Well, I mean, it was presented to Fortnite players and they could go if they want to. I guess the question is how much the people who have shown up to play some Fortnite want to see some modern art? Well, it's a great pairing of exhibition and artist. Cause is a bit of a phenomenon in and of himself, particularly among young people. His figurines can be spotted on the shelves of celebrities, including BTS, the South Korean pop band, Justin Bieber, all the Kardashians. So if there's going to be anyone that young players of Fortnite are going to be interested in, it's going to be cause. His works are so popular because they draw on popular culture. They rework figures from The Simpsons, from Sesame Street. We've also seen that reflected in the price of his works at auction, a painting sold in recent years for, I think, $14 million dollars. And one of the things that, that we spoke with Daniel about was the, the degree to which all of this is, uh, well, is, is just sort of mindlessly commercial. What, what do you make of that question? 
It's a question that critics have also posed, but I think that's a question that has always animated critics, particularly of pop art. If you look back to the 1960s, Andy Warhol, critics thought that that was pointless and commercial as well. But what does popular mean today? What is popular media? I mean, it's no longer print. It's no longer the New York Times or even television. It's, of course, digital stuff. It's uh, social media. It's uh, TikTok and Instagram and all of that. And I guess Brian is maybe the artist who has managed to kind of package that more effectively than any other contemporary artist. I've been thinking that, what is pop art today? I guess this is pop art today. Kors himself sees this as a return to the sort of origins of his career as a graffiti artist or a street artist. He sees this as an extension of that. He's not taken a fee for this work. He's simply putting his art in a space where people can go and see it and enjoy it. And if they like art, maybe that will encourage them to visit an exhibition in real life. So in that sense, you think this is a a sign of things to come? We'll have these extremely multimedia exhibitions in years to come? I mean, it's a win-win for artists, especially if they've got an online shop that people might go and visit, as Kors does. Kors himself does see this as a return to the spirit of his early work. He says that his whole career has been exploring the idea of what art is and what it can be. So I think this is probably an experiment that will continue. Thanks very much for joining us, Rachel. Thank you. all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review and see you back here tomorrow. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.